Hello from Yerushalayim and Beit Shemesh. It's been Yom Rose and myself, Gedalia Gutentag with Mishpachat's home front, covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Welcome back, Benyamin. We had a siren-free Shabbos, but from the back of Ramat Beit Shemesh, we saw the heavy salvo coming out from Gaza onto the Tel Aviv area of Shabbos. How was your Shabbos overall? Yerushalayim was quiet once again, thank God. And like I always say, that you could be quiet here, but until it's quiet everywhere else in the country, we can't sleep peacefully and rest. We still have to keep davening and hoping for the best. So on that topic, davening and hoping for the best. Benjamin, I think it's a chance to kind of get some perspective on what we discussed last week and where things are standing. Let me start by linking two worrying facts to give one headline. And I just like your kind of, if you bear with me, it might be a slightly lengthy headline. But like your opinion on this, Israel is fighting a war that looks like it's going to be the longest it's ever fought because we're not just fighting Hamas. It's the start of what I'd say is, I think we should be clear on this, the Israel-Iran proxy war. And so that headlines is made up of two elements. The first is the Gaza campaign, which we know is turning out to be a grinding campaign. I think what we know is, again, very, very little, but coming in from gleaning various bits from the IDF and from the Israeli commentators and also from foreign sources, we see that obviously this is a far from a lightning campaign. After a week of ground fighting, the IDF is still in the outer areas of Gaza City on three axes, from the coast to the northwest, from the northeast, from the south, where it's split the Gaza Strip in half. And it's, you know, slowly surrounding and inching into the Gaza City suburbs. We need, as you said, tremendous fillers because we need a collapse in Hamas's lines. If so many soldiers, almost 30, have died even before reaching Gaza City, there's evidence that this is fierce, fierce fighting and they've not even got to the main course. Let's not forget, Binyamin, that from the south, we have rockets coming from Khan Yunus. How do you destroy Hamas without going to the south? Obviously, you can't. But how do you go into the south when well, there's a million refugees from the north in the south and there's nowhere to send them back to in the north? This is going to be very, very difficult. I think it's clear from the Gaza end, this is going to be a long war. Add another thing over here is what we saw on Erev Shabbos and the Israeli media have been picking over ever since. It's been Hassan Nasrallah's speech, the head of Hezbollah's speech, anxiously watched, I'd say, from the Kiryat to the Pentagon. And the, the bottom line is Israeli commentators and, and analysts, they're busy saying that we can't be sure what Hezbollah looks like is deterred at the moment, but no one in their right mind can base anything on that and therefore... Whilst half the army is busy trying to clean out Gaza, the second half of the army is busy there and will have to remain on the northern border because no one is going to go back home to the northern border with this threat from Hezbollah. So, Binyamin, thank you for bearing with me on that. And I just summarize what I'd say all of this. When you have those two dynamics together, what it looks like to me is that the following. Our generation is going to have to learn an Israeli reality that we had thought had long gone which is the reality of major sustained conflict. And beyond the job of taking the world's support with us, including the United States, is getting ever harder as the days pass. Gedalia, there's a lot of food for thought there. I'll add to what you said by making the following comments. At the beginning of the campaign, all of the Israeli political and military leaders said that this is our second war of independence. I think the reason why they said that is because just like the War of Independence lasted about a year, so this one could last that long also. 
Of course, this time could be a bit different because a lot of it is contingent upon the continuing support of the United States and at least the patience of many other important countries around the world. But we have to stand resolute. And I think that uh, we saw signs of that the other day when uh, Secretary of State Blinken came to town and he asked for a uh, humanitarian pause. And Yoav Gallant's response was, we'll consider a humanitarian pause when we get our hostages back. And I think that was absolutely the correct approach. Point number one. Point number two, Hamas has been building their infrastructure for 15 years, ever since they took over the Gaza Strip in the 2007 election. And what they built in 15 years isn't going to be destroyed in 15 minutes. And it might not be destroyed in 15 weeks either. It could take 15 months. And Israel has to continue to uh, put the pressure on that because we can never go back to uh, the situation that occurred beforehand where we feel threatened and that nobody can live near the border of Gaza and where you never know when you'll wake up to to rocket attacks. So Israel right now is clearing out the north and they sent most of the uh, Gazan Arabs packing to the south. And Israel will be using its military power in the north, which is really where most of the Hamas infrastructure is, to clear that out. But you're absolutely right that if they're all in the south, so what are you going to do? You can't necessarily move them back north when it's time to dismantle the infrastructure in the south because the north will be pretty much totally destroyed. There's no place for them to live. The solution really is for Egypt to open the gates and take them in. And that probably isn't going to happen, at least not willingly, but that really has to be the solution. Yaman, at which point, sorry to interrupt here, but at which point Israel is then accused by an even wider swathe of the world left of ethnic cleansing? Let's be clear where this type of thing leads. And I would argue with that, and I'll tell you why. This is what I would say to the world. Uh, what I would say is that, no, this isn't ethnic cleansing. We're trying to save their lives. And we're trying to save our lives in the process, too. And if they want to come back, and if the world is willing to contribute to the reconstruction of Gaza, and that ends up being the solution, then we're happy to do that. But to say that by clearing them out of harm's way is ethnic cleansing is, to me, a faulty argument. And I think we need to be prepared to counter that. Right. Where does that leave us, Binyamin, with, you know, Biden being our most important supporter, sitting atop a Democratic Party that is far to the left of where it was within recent memory? Where does that leave us with his support and the Democratic Party's support? We're already seeing an erosion in Democratic Party support. Over the weekend, the Huffington Post reported that about 15% of the Democratic National Committee members signed a note to the committee urging that Biden declare a ceasefire, but urge all parties to uh, adopt an immediate ceasefire, which of course would be bad for Israel because uh, Israel hasn't finished its military campaign yet and it's not even close. We also see other sectors of the Democratic Party that are basically putting pressure on Biden as well. Uh, We see Michigan Democrats who are saying that, you know, Joe, you won Michigan in uh, 2020, but you may not win it in 2024 because we've got 300,000 Arab American voters who aren't very happy with your policy. So that's putting pressure on Biden. On the other hand, what it comes down to in politics is, especially at times like this, when there's a tremendous turmoil in the world, like during a world war, is Biden a leader or a follower? If he's a leader, he'll stick to his guns and he'll say, this is what we need to do. And what Israel is doing is also a benefit to the free world. If he's a follower, at some point he'll cave or he'll soften his position. And then Israel will be under much more pressure because We'll have to decide, are we going to uh, go it alone or with lukewarm U.S. support? Or uh, are we going to cave also and then stop in the middle 
uh, which would leave us once again exposed to uh, possible Hamas attacks and them rebuilding their infrastructure. For us, it's either us or them. We have to make that very clear to the Americans and to everybody else. You know, Benjamin, the way you're framing this is an interesting parallel emerging with British politics. Back in the 2006 Lebanon war, it was Tony Blair who's sitting atop. He was a leader, very pro-Israel, very understanding of Israel's position, sitting atop a party that was going ever further leftward. And obviously the British left is further to the left of the American left, as we repeatedly see. And yet this was, in the way of framing it here, the leader of the follower paradigm over here, he, Tony Blair, emerged as a leader. It's probably, it was the nail in the coffin of Tony Blair, leadership of the, of the Labour Party, his utter divergence with his party, because he said, that's it, I'm supporting Israel. And they've never forgiven him for his rock-solid support. And he's been, you know, among, for, for other reasons as well. But since then, he's been basically a hate figure for large parts of the Labour Party. And what we need over here, what we're asking for at the moment is, as you say, Biden to stay, that's it. My principles trump local politics and the fact that some of my party has gone so far left. So I think it's a very interesting uh, the way you're framing it. But Vinyamin, can we move on to another aspect of the foreign context of this war, Israel's war, uh, which is Russia? Uh, we haven't really discussed it so much, but I think it's important. I think if we look at Russia's rhetoric, we see that at the beginning, it's got very quickly bad and turned negative to Israel. Only last week, we heard that the uh, Russia's uh, ambassador to the United Nations saying that Israel doesn't have a right to self-defense because it's an occupying power, which is obviously a bit rich considering what they're doing in Ukraine. But then I think more seriously, it's gone from words to actions when Bloomberg has reported that Israel has stopped warning Russia that it's about to strike in Syria. And in return, the Wall Street Journal reports that the Wagner Group is transferring or plans to transfer advanced air defense systems to Hezbollah. So the dynamic, I think, is that Russia's maybe turning from just negative words to an active adversary, which would mean that if for Israel, a red line moment could be approaching. What's your take on that? I'll say it very simply. Russia's concerned about its own interests. And to an extent, I would say China too, thrives on the instability and thrives on uh, turmoil. And as long as there is instability and turmoil in this region, then Russia has a lot of avenues with which to operate, whether it's supporting Assad in Syria or whether it's supporting Hamas, at least verbally. And once the turmoil dies down and once there's a decisive victory, then Russia has fewer places in which they can go in order to try to influence what's going to happen here. So I think that could be part of their game right now. It's a dangerous game. And I don't think that Israel ever should have counted on Putin's support. And if they indeed are not informing Russia in advance of any attacks on Iranian positions in Syria, then good for Israel. And I promised something about Nasrallah before when you mentioned Nasrallah. I just thought it was interesting that a lot of his speech was trying to talk about how weak Israel is. And I thought it was very ironic considering here's a guy who couldn't appear in public. He has to appear on screen from whatever hole he might be hiding in. And if that's not a display of weakness, I don't know what is. And he's saying that Israel is weak. I think he ought to look in the mirror if he wants to look for weakness. But that's not to downplay the threat from uh, Hezbollah. I don't want to do that because uh, there's still a bigger military threat than Hamas. And should they decide to join the fray in full force and not just on a slow burn, then we could be in for a bloodier and gorier battle. Something else we have to dive in that doesn't happen. 
just to finish on that topic, we see that uh, there are many ways to wage war. One, to, one way to break through in the media space is sometimes to use uh, sarcasm and effectively so by Elon Levy, who's a British spokesman who's popped up and become prominent in the Prime Minister Bibi's PR outfit. And he ended his response to Nasrallah's speech last night. It was cutting and he looked at the speech. It was Nasrallah's speech. It was so empty of meaning. He says it looks like that Nasrallah's speechwriter has been killed in an IBF airstrike in Lebanon. So I thought that was definitely a breath of fresh air from in terms of the normal stuffy PR messaging that comes out of Israel.